Welcome to Rights Talk, a podcast devoted to engaging contemporary human rights challenges from around the world. I'm Danielle Zak, postdoctoral fellow at the City College of New York downtown. Today's discussion focuses on gender-based violence, including sexual violence in contexts of armed conflict, particularly against women and LGBTQIA persons, as well as developments in international criminal law. Joining us for this discussion is Lisa Davis, Associate Professor of Law and Co-Director of the Human Rights and Gender Justice Clinic at the CUNY School of Law. Professor Davis, many thanks for joining us today on Rights Talk. Well, thanks for having me, Daniela. It's a pleasure to be here. You have a very rich body of scholarship on gender-based violence, including in contexts of armed conflict. You have a piece that you recently published concerning ISIS's, the Islamic State's violence against women and LGBTQ persons in Iraq. Can you illuminate the particular vulnerabilities that these marginalized groups face? Sure. Uh, Well, my scholarship really focuses on looking at women and LGBTQ rights Uh, internationally under both international human rights law and international criminal law uh, with a particular focus on conflict and atrocities. So most of my work really is uh, working with, um, as a lawyer, working with grassroots groups in countries that are affected by conflict. uh, And those are the cases that my students in the clinic take on and and often represent those groups as, as lawyers in international venues. Uh, and really looking at how we can work on creating better protections, greater access to rights and to justice, you know, for those human rights activists that are facing those kinds of tragedies in their countries because of conflict and, and primarily because of their gender. So to get to your second question of what kind of, uh, you know, violations do we see and how, how conflict, you know, has a unique effect on LGBTIQ persons, it it really does, whether it's conflict or atrocity, it really does. So oftentimes what we see is, is that there's, you know, really everywhere in the world, there's a lack of solid laws to really protect women and LGBTIQ people. And of course, you know, conflict is no exception, especially when there's already such trouble implementing law to begin with, that uh, groups that are particularly vulnerable or marginalized really suffer the brunt of the conflict. So when armed actors roll into a town and they take it over, they often pick on the most vulnerable, the most weakest, those that are the least likely to be defended in their community. And that's a way that they exert their control. It's a way to uh, show their force and might and to have the least amount of pushback or resistance. And LGBTQIQ people and women for that matter are uh, two such groups that really get affected in that way. So our work is really looking at figuring out the kinds of crimes that they suffer from and raising visibility. And that work is so necessary because there's so much that goes into documenting crimes during conflict and atrocities, but oftentimes we're just not really taking a gendered lens. When we do with sexual violence, we see sexual violence and conflict and that's good. That's, that's almost always gendered and we need to capture that. But we really don't see those crimes that go beyond sexual violence. 
So those gender-based crimes that happen to women or LGBTIQ or gender non-conforming or non-binary or men because of their gender, those crimes as an international community, we're not so good at, at, at grabbing those, at seeing those. Yeah, it seems that increasingly there's been attention to specifically sexual violence against women and increasingly against men. But you raise and your scholarship focuses on this wider range of crimes that occur in the in these contexts. Can you say some some more about um, some of the research that you've come across and some of the crimes that you see repeatedly happening in these in these contexts? Sure. Well, a lot of our documentation has focused on ISIS. Uh, we've also been looking at crimes and conflict in Mali and in Colombia, uh, in the DRC, and uh, some other places too. And looking at it from a gender lens, we see crimes that look very similarly situated, no matter if you're in Africa or the Middle East or, you know, even in atrocity situations in the U.S. You, you don't need a conflict to have gender-based crimes happening, for sure. Uh, and there's something that all these crimes have in common, and it's the way that these crimes happen because of discrimination based on gender. So the kinds of crimes we're seeing is, you know, typical crimes that you might see in conflict, rape or torture or murder. But then what we do is we use a frame of, of a gender lens to really look at how these crimes might be uh, committed to uh, impose discriminatory beliefs or attitudes. So for example, in Iraq, uh, ISIS committed you know, egregious crimes. We know that they threw men perceived or you know, real uh, as gay from buildings. We know that they issued warrants against, death warrants against lesbians. But we also know that they committed gender crimes against women more broadly. So for example, women doctors who took their gloves off to be able to perform medical duties were beaten. So this kind of torture happened because she was out of a, a dress compliance or a woman who lift, lifted her veil to be able to drink water who was severely beaten. In one instance, uh, one case documented she actually died from the beating. Um, we've documented men who couldn't grow beards or didn't wanna grow a beard um, being humiliated or beaten for, for not being in you know, beard compliance by ISIS. Uh, the same thing with pant length and um, other kinds of dress codes. So what's important about these cases is that, you know, the international community is pretty good about getting the, the torture or the murder or the rape that happened. But if we don't get why these crimes happened, if we don't get that they happened because of gender discrimination, because of that need for the perpetrator to exert a gender narrative onto that woman or onto that gay man or onto that um, individual to, to control the way that they express themselves, to control their narrative of how gender works. If we don't capture that part of the analysis, we're only getting half the story. We're only getting half the story. And that charge under international criminal law is gender persecution. Gender persecution is a tool that we can use to show why these crimes happen. So it's a two-part test. You need the crime, the rape, the torture, the murder, and then you needed the protected group that it happened against. And in this case, the protected group is based on gender. So when gender discrimination happens and it's enforced through heinous crimes like torture, then you have that two-part test that's been satisfied and then you have gender persecution. Surprisingly though, we've never had a case of gender persecution 
well, at least not a substantively successful case in an international tribunal ever in the decades of its existence. Professor Davis, I want to ask you uh, more about the development of international law and the gaps between law and enforcement. But before we move on uh, to thinking more about that, I want to ask you, 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 you discuss violence as a continuum, uh, conflict as a continuum. And you talk about the ways in which women and LGBTIQ persons are particularly vulnerable. Can we perhaps think about, you know, kind of the, the, the structural conditions that uh, lead, um, lead women and LGBTQI persons to be specifically vulnerable in many of these contexts? And also to think about what are some of the ways in which, if we think about at the other end of the continuum in terms of peace building, in what ways uh, do these problems persist and even potentially get perpetuated? Sure. Well, we know when, when uh, armed actors move into a, a town or even where there's just atrocities happening uh, more broadly, that the first thing that, that gets exacerbated are those discriminatory beliefs or attitudes that may have pre-existed in, in that society. So often what a perpetrator will do is they will adopt these discriminatory beliefs and then they just, they just enforce them to the umph degree. And they take a very extreme approach to them and often enforce them with these heinous crimes. So if you look at conflict on a continuum, instead of just as a siloed or one-off containment where we just have to kind of you know, get the get bad guys and then move on, we look at it more holistically, we could actually draw some good lessons learned in terms of how to achieve more sustainable peace. So looking, for example, at discriminatory provisions that existed in law before the conflict, where was there a dearth of protection for women in LGBTIQ people? You know, where, was, uh, where did discrimination already exist under law? And we know there's a high percentage of countries that still don't codify uh, marital rape as a crime, that uh, pr give certain types of permissions to underaged marriage, that um, don't allow women to pass on their nationality to their children or at least restrict that right, that there are all sorts of trends and discriminatory laws that exist around the world that limit the rights that everyone's entitled to, but they limit the rights for women and LGBTIQ people. And these, these laws that exist or lack of laws that exist you know, they're often based on discriminatory beliefs or attitudes, or they're just old holdovers from old times. And when perpetrators come in and they exacerbate crimes, they exacerbate these views and use crimes to enforce them. You know, if we treat conflict like a silo, then maybe we'll get the crime and we'll get the, the top leader who commanded or was ultimately responsible for that crime. But we're not really actually doing much for the survivors that are left behind. So what's going to happen to them when they go back, you know, to peace and stability? If we haven't corrected the laws, if we haven't built in those protections or amended those policies so that those discriminatory provisions don't exist. Without doing that, we're really not protecting the most vulnerable, most marginalized people that have been hit the hardest by conflict. I want to talk more about international criminal justice. Um, there have been some developments since the 1990s, I specifically in terms of sexual violence and, and armed conflict, but you mentioned gender persecution 
And I'd like to perhaps talk to you or ask you about, you know, if you could help us think about how international law has evolved and what gaps continue to exist, both in the law and in terms of enforcement. Well, certainly before the 1990s, we had a, a real dearth of protections for, for women or more broadly on gender um, uh, under international law. You know, we had these old stereotypes, some of them we still deal with today. The idea of, of rape is just a, a consequence of war. It's just a, a part of it. It's a tragedy, but it's, it's ultimately inevitable. It's going to happen. You know, these old slogans like boys will be boys, um, you know, or casualties of war. Uh, and these, these narratives that don't really make a lot of sense when you're talking about a human rights violation that should actually be acknowledged and addressed. And our feminist foremothers did such a great job in the 90s in the Rwanda and the Yugoslavia tribunals, really pounding the pavement, raising visibility and pushing against resistance to, to addressing and recognizing sexual violence crimes. And they were able to get that recognition and to take crimes that are often invisible or dismissed as inevitable and bring them into the forefront of the international community and to start demand redress for them. And in the Rome Statute, which is the treaty that governs the International Criminal Court, a large uh, contingency of, of you know, women's rights and human rights activists were really able to advocate to have sexual violence uh, included as a recognized crime in that statute. And in fact, they, they got a whole list of enumerated crimes from rape to uh, sexual slavery to in, you know, enforced prostitution, and it's great that we got that. So we were able to really accomplish something in the 90s, which is recognition of sexual violence as a crime. And that was so necessary. So the question is, what's the next step in the discourse? And where do we need to go from here? And I think where we need to go is to continue building on that foundation of work that was built in the 90s and start to look beyond sexual violence at other forms of gender-based violence and gender-based crimes and conflict. All of those forms of gender crimes that we were just talking about that include sexual violence, but also go beyond sexual violence. And that's, you know, that's that where we're talking about the, the gender discrimination, the gender motivation and committing torture and committing murder and committing forced displacement, that these crimes are also gendered just as sexual violence um, almost always is, and that they also need to be recognized and addressed under international law. I think about the gaps between the law and the enforcement. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about um, some of the weaknesses in terms of international criminal justice? We know that arrest warrants can be issued. Uh, it is not so easy sometimes to get perpetrators into courtrooms. Perhaps we could talk a little bit more in terms of actually enforcing the law, particularly with respect to the crimes that we've been discussing. Well, the international criminal justice system is certainly far from perfect. I mean, first of all, it's a very traditional form of accountability, which is not always the right response to, to crimes when they happen. I'm a firm believer in taking a ground up approach that the people who have experienced the issue and are leading on the issue in country and in their local communities, 
they need to decide the kind of accountability that's right for them. And that could range from transformative justice to uh, you know, truth and reconciliation to traditional tribunals or trials to um, you know, uh, restorative justice. So there's really just so many different forms it could take and we need to listen to the, the voices of those communities. But ostensibly, courts like the International Criminal Court or ad hoc tribunals that the Security Council might set up, they're really there when you know, all else fails and there needs to be extra help and there's not a way to have a local mechanism uh, enacted to, to achieve accountability. Well, at least that's, that's the theory of why they exist. And, and like you pointed out, the problem is that most of their mandates or focus is really on the, the highest commanders who led the crimes. It's not on um, everyone who might have, have committed crimes. It doesn't answer questions of what you do um, to build community reconciliation reintegration. It doesn't build in the answers of what to do around restoration. You know, there's, it, it doesn't really have a re very small, you know, restorative justice component. It doesn't answer all the questions we need in terms of really building a, a stable peace uh, after conflict has ended. So it really only can play this very tiny part. And even with that part, you know, it, it's dealing with the most egregious crimes committed by the, the top perpetrators. And there's certainly a value to that, but there's such a bigger picture of how we deal with um, the aftermath of conflict that, you know, leaves some questions to how it's gonna be addressed. And so that comes down to that implementation question. You know, you know when you're in a peace and reconstruction process, uh, we need to look at how are we going to change those laws or amend those laws? And then once they're amended, if we can even get to that stage, how do we implement them? How do we train judges on a new standard of equality and police and prosecutors and other, other first responders and judicial actors and healthcare providers to take away the stigma that's embedded in gender crimes and, and to help build a, a community that is more sensitive to victims and more open to victims and really does prioritize uh, equality and human rights. So I wanted maybe to ask you about the work of your clinic. I think it's so exciting. I, it's, it's so fantastic because you, you're, you're a legal scholar, you do research, you, know, you document these crimes, but you're also an activist, a uh, legal activist and very much engaged in, in, in pushing for transformation. Um, maybe you could tell us about, about the work at the clinic and, and what you do with the students and, and how they've been, um, you know, contribute to advancing uh, the goals of changing, changing law and being able to get justice for victims in these situations. Yeah, well, the um, students in the clinic certainly take on uh, a, a, a deep and you know, they're very steeped in, in the work for sure. It's, um, it's a 16 credit third year clinic. So it's eight credits a semester for a full year. So students really get a chance to get hands-on experience representing, advocating, and, you know, working on litigation as it pertains under uh, international law. Of course, as you know, the area that I'm most focused on is conflict and atrocities. So that's where we work. 
So students, for example, have represented Iraqis who are documenting crimes under ISIS. They have um, worked for um, a few generations of looking at the documentation that they bring in, putting this gender framing on it, filing an amicus brief, actually a, a petition um, to the International Criminal Court calling on the court to look at these crimes, albeit somewhat symbolic because of complexities of how the court may or may not be able to get involved in, in, uh, in crimes committed by ISIS in Iraq, but certainly helpful. In fact, that work led to a lot of conversations with the International Criminal Court. So, you know, students got on a plane, went to The Hague, were meeting with, with, the, with lawyers there, talking about the documentation they found, talking to different states who are looking to prosecute ISIS fighters in their own domestic jurisdictions uh, about, about the evidence that they found and, and this framing around uh, gender persecution or gender crimes that you know, we wanna make sure it doesn't get lost and is very important to the partners in Iraq that we work with. Uh, and then also just doing workshops with Iraqis in terms of this persecution and gender lens and, and helping them deepen the work that they do on documentation. I think we've met with Iraqis. We can't go to Iraq, um, but we do go to Istanbul um, and we've gone, I think, to Jordan in the past uh, to meet with, with um, our Iraqi partners, you know, in order to be able to have these dialogues and exchanges and update them on what's happening in the international community and, you know, do all sorts of, of work that way. So it's very much a, a, a project and the, the clinic work that I do is very much steeped in fact-finding investigation. We do the same thing for Colombia. There we're looking at gender-based crimes at the intersection of race and gender. So we're looking at crimes that were committed against Afro-Colombian women and indigenous women. And what we know is that we know is that disproportionately most of the conflict happened on Afro-Colombian indigenous lands. We know that. But then when you look at the, the transitional justice process, most of the crimes being brought forward don't represent, they're not reflective of the, of the people who live on the lands where most of the crimes took place. So why is that? And we know it's just institutionalized misogyny and racism that we need to work to address. So when, when um, uh, Afro-Columbian coalition asked us to work with them on this issue, we were all about helping them with it. So we've been doing the same project with them. There, of course, students can go to Columbia. Uh, so we do, we go there, we go to the Afro-Columbian territories, we meet with people, we do workshops and trainings on documentation, we document um, a lot of the crimes ourselves as well. And then we take all that information and we put together legal submissions to different regional and international bodies uh, that are, are key and relevant to looking at these crimes in country. That is so fantastic. That is so exciting to actually be on the ground embedded within these communities and working closely with them. Can you say more about the the target of these, uh, the legal briefs that you prepare? Yeah, we go to um, treaty bodies, human rights treaty bodies, um, whenever there's a relevant uh, hearing coming up that we think might have impact on our issue. Students, uh, you know, they do the interviewing, the fact finding, they prepare the legal submission, they go to Geneva, you know, with, with um, the partner in the particular country we're working in, 
to work with them on their testimony and to advocate to at the hearing um, to get our issues heard. Um, most of those, most of the treaty body hearings happen in Geneva. We also have done the Inter-American Commission, the Inter-American Court. They also take place, actually they've been rotating around where they take place in, in North and South America. Um, and, um, you know, I've mentioned the International Criminal Court. Uh, and then we also have agreements. We have written agreements with UNITAD and with the IIIM. And those are two uh, mechanisms that are working, that have been you know, put together by the United Nations to look at uh, ISIS committed crimes in Iraq and Syria. So, and through our written agreements with them, we also engage and work with them on the, the documentation that you know, we put together in collaboration with our Iraqi partners. Can you say more about those mechanisms? I mean, those were actually kind of novel, at least I know that I know the triple IM, um, but you know, our listeners might not be familiar with those acronyms and, and maybe understand just how hard one it was to get those mechanisms in place. Um, sure, well, the triple IM uh, is based in Geneva. It stands for the International Impartial and Independent Mechanism. And it was set up by the UN to investigate, uh, well, the most serious crimes uh, committed in uh, Syria. Um, so our work at looking at those crimes uh, committed by ISIS, um, especially where perpetrators may have crossed the border between Iraq and Syria, because we know many of them have, and uh, we have, um, several thousand now pieces of documentation with victims, witnesses, perpetrators identified, um, and then photographic evidence, other forms of evidence, uh, electronic evidence that we've gathered. So it's quite a robust data set that we've been working with the IIIM on and trying to figure out who might be um, crossing those borders um, that might be of interest to them. And then there's UNITAD, which was set up by the Security Council, and it stands for the Investigative Team to Promote Accountability for Crimes Committed by Daesh or ISIL. Um, so, uh, and they're based in Baghdad, um, and they have a specific mandate, they have specific incidences or atrocities that happen under ISIS that they can look at. Um, so we've been working with them in terms of where um, our, uh, our documentation might also align with their interests and what they're looking at. And of course, I have to say, I always say this, that part of what we're doing with this too, it's really threefold. One is to make sure these crimes are recognized and they get into the proper, the proper accountability mechanism. Uh, two is to protect and advocate for our partners that are collecting this information, whether it's Colombia or Iraq, um, we know that there are certain, you know, dangers to them uh, in terms of their work around this. We wanna make sure that they get the best representation possible. And then three, to make sure that it has that gendered lens, to make sure that these accountability mechanisms are looking at it through that gender framework so that it's not just random acts of torture or murder, that they're actually seeing the gender discrimination, the motivation behind that crime that makes it gendered and that that's going to get into the historical record because that's what we think will really help to work towards more sustainable peace. Very exciting work that you're doing um, in, in many parts of the globe. 
I wanted to ask you came to before you came to CUNY Law. You actually have a background. At, is it an NGO, Madre? Is that right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and you're still a, a senior advisor there, as I understand. Maybe you could tell us about your work in, as at this activist uh, organization, and you know what is it doing in the Americas, the Middle East, and Africa. Well, Madre is a wonderful organization. It is a um, feminist human rights organization that works in numerous countries around the globe, uh, partnering with grassroots women's organizations and helping them, you know, on a diverse, diverse set of needs that they have. Um, it is a funder first and foremost, so it provides grants and technical assistance and capacity building and, you know, everything from safety and security measures for a group to, you know, if they need, if they have, you know, obstacles setting up a bank account, often due to discrimination, like for, you know, indigenous communities have had that, that problem in Guatemala and some, some um, organizations in Iraq have had that issue. So they really are there to provide a very supportive role um, to grassroots women's organizations around the world, you know, just through a different array of, of needs that those groups have and, and helping them to meet those needs, but including, including making grants to them. So that's, um, that's primary what Madre does. They also have an advocacy department, which I founded before I, I came to CUNY. It's, you know, now run up by an excellent uh, advocacy director. And that department is there to support those, those grassroots women's groups and doing all kinds of advocacy and litigation similar to what we do in the clinic. Sometimes we work together when that makes sense and with other INGOs uh, who are doing the same work, you know, really following that philosophy that movement building is very important to be able to accomplish things. But um, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's also a great place where a lot of my students end up going and working in their, in the legal team there after they graduate from the clinic. So, um, you know, there's always a, a familiar face there to, to see and work with, which is, which is also really nice. That's fantastic. You, can you say a little bit more about the ways in which your clinic works with NGOs in, in addition to Madre? What other organizations are kind of in your orbit and how do they facilitate your work or how do, how do you work together? I love this idea. You talk about building a movement and a coalition and how important it is to join together to kind of push for change against much larger powers. <laughs> Yeah, sure. I mean, when our issues are touching on militarization, um, we've worked with WILF, that's the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Uh, when we uh, work on uh, LGBTIQ issues, we often work with Outright Action International. They're, um, they're the main, I'd say the main international NGO working on LGBT issues globally, and they're, they're based here in New York. Uh, when we work on uh, disability issues, we're often working with Women Enabled uh, International. They're also based here in New York and they do excellent work on looking at those issues in conflict and atrocity. And, um, and we work with Men Engage. They're a fantastic organization working as uh, men as allies in the fight to end sexual violence. And they do some truly phenomenal work. 
So you mentioned gender persecution, the crime of gender persecution, and noted how it's never been prosecuted. We've never uh, had a case that has been successfully prosecuted in an international court. Can you say more about this crime uh, and what you hope to see happen in the justice system in the coming years? Yeah, well, gender persecution is this, it's, an, it's, this, it's really an interesting crime in, in some ways because it's been on the, on the books, on the law books of international criminal law for, for some time, for a couple of decades. I mean, persecution has been on the law books since the birth of modern international criminal law. And the protected categories under persecution has expanded over time and is of course expanded to include gender. So it's an interesting, it's interesting in the sense that we've had recognition of it, it's there, it's always, been there hanging out on the law books, but it's never been applied. I mean, the only, the only time it's really been applied in a successful uh, international tribunal was, I, I found a case in, in Bosnia in 2003, and it mentions gender persecution, but there's no facts or it, it doesn't say what it's applied to or why or how. So I'm not really sure that counts. I guess that technically ticks the box, but other than that, there's really never been a case. And this seems so surprising because clearly we have gender-based crimes happening that would fit the rubric of gender persecution you know, if we were to, to look at them more closely. So I started asking myself why we're not looking at these crimes. And I realized that we really just don't know how to recognize these crimes. You know, we have sexual violence recognized and that's good and we know what that looks like. But, you know, like we were talking about earlier, we really don't know what gender-based crimes look like. So I think it's been this tool that's out there that no one really knows how to apply because they don't know what they're looking for. So this started, this really sparked interest in terms of, you know, bringing back to life this, this statute and really looking at it, this provision under criminal law and really looking at it to say, how is this a tool? How can we use this, you know, given any kind of accountability? context. Again, um, you know, restorative justice to truth and reconciliation to a traditional tribunal, whatever form of accountability you use, the first step is recognizing or at least being in agreement of what's a crime, right? Before you get to the next step, which is how do you handle that crime? Do you want to deal with it in a traditional way or in a restorative way? But before you can get to the second step of how, you have to go all the way back to the first step, which is where I've been looking at, which is what is a crime? And so acknowledging gender persecution as a crime, acknowledging gender-based crimes, which is basically what that gives us the ability to do because gender-based crimes is a term, it's a term of art, but there's no law that says gender-based crimes is a punishable crime, right? There, that, that doesn't exist, it's just a term of art. So what's the crime that we're saying was committed? you know, the rape, the torture, the murder. Those are crimes. We recognize them. They're in most penal codes. Well, persecution is that crime. That's how we get gender-based uh, crimes. We get it under gender persecution. So the idea that it's never been used just seemed so odd. And realizing that it's really because we just don't recognize, we don't recognize, you know, the why behind the torture, the why behind the murder. And if we did, if we did, we would be able to get a larger swath of crimes or at least a deeper understanding of them, not only for women, but also for LGBT people. 
which we've never had successful uh, recognition of in tribunals either. But the good news is that the international community is starting to move forward on this. They're starting to pick up the idea that we need to use this framing, that we need to have a deeper understanding of why these crimes happen based on gender discrimination. So for example, we have now in the HEP, which is Colombia's traditional justice process, just in April, for the first time, they have set gender persecution charges in a case of crimes committed against five LGBT people. Now that's historical and precedent setting and it's gonna have real implications for the global community because they're saying, hey, gender persecution is real, it's a crime against humanity and it happened against five LGBTQ people. That's great, that's progress. And we, we sort of see it now being hinted in the, the double I, double M, that's the mechanism for Myanmar. They're starting to use the language, persecutory acts based on gender. They've documented cases of a trans person um, we see it now in the Hassan case in Mali, where the prosecutor has charged both gender and religious persecution for acts committed against women, for mostly around dress and performance. So we're starting to see, it's starting to gain some attention and it's starting to pick up a little bit of speed, which is great. All of this has really only happened in the last you know, year or so. So in two decades, nothing. And now just in the last year, everything's starting to, to move on this. And hopefully it's really gonna take us to a better place. You know, that place where we can really have a better understanding, a richer understanding of how inequality and gender discrimination plays out during egregious crimes of atrocity and conflict. And, you know, the added recognition of, you know, crimes against LGBT people are also crimes that need to be recognized, just front and center. So you know, we'll see how it goes, but that's, um, that's the hope. Yeah, that sounds like some terrific developments happening, both normatively in terms of in the framing, as you say, the legal framing uh, of, of actually leveraging this, this crime that's on the books that's never been uh, adequately used uh, to give and to provide protection and, and to, uh, you know, provide justice for victims. And also, you know, in terms of the kinds of cases, and you mentioned that there's increasingly LGBTIQ persons are given, are, are being uh, presented in court, are being able to, you know, achieve justice, have their crimes committed against them recognized for what they are. Um, and that's also very exciting. I wanted to ask you though, you know, I, I imagine that it's also difficult for victims to get victims to come forward um, given the stigmas that exist around uh, these crimes. Can you maybe say something how, of, of, about, about this issue and, and how your clinic perhaps tries to tackle it in terms of getting people to report so that you can have this documented and have this you know, on the books? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I mean, certainly we have to do more work with documenters and investigators and first responders um, in these contexts so that they're better equipped to recognize uh, victims and the nuances that victims face uh, when they're out in the field doing that kind of work. I mean, to this end, we're creating a, a, a toolkit on identifying and documenting and investigating gender persecution uh, that we hope will be useful for international accountability mechanisms uh, in their work being able to, you know, understand these crimes on the ground. And of course it will come with the recommendations of, you know, 
the kinds of sensitive provisions that we need for you know survivors of these crimes but certainly if we if we could get recognition of these crimes and of these survivors um, <clears throat> that would actually help us open the door for more participation of survivors because we know that you have to have survivor participation in peace processes and reconstruction processes. I mean, hands down, people who are affected by the issue need to have a seat at the table. I mean, that just is a no brainer, but we never see them at the table. And, you know, there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, one is, is there are stereotypes around women. Uh, women's participation in peace processes is uh, a long time discussed topic. And there's a slew of studies and research that show that if you have women in peace treaties, they're 70% more likely to lead to more sustainable peace. And we have rhetorical statements from states calling for it. But in practice, we really just never see it. And that has to go with a lot of stereotypes around women's participation that are unfair and create these obstacles. And part of the way we get around that is just broadening, broadening the, the, the mobilization and momentum for, for, for survivors who participate in these processes. And we could do that under the banner of gender persecution survivors. Because then you have women, you have LGBTIQ people, you have gender non-conforming people who just don't fit into society and, and may have suffered the consequences for that. You can build more of a movement around survivor participation in peace processes under a bigger banner. And then women come in plus everyone else who also have um, suffered from these crimes. And then that's, that's formidable. That's hard to say no to when you have that big of a population of of different types of victims who have experienced the brunt of conflict and deserve a seat at the table. That would be hard to ignore, but it all goes back to, you know, being able to recognize them on the ground because when somebody, you know, faces double or triple discrimination, you know, because they're, you know, Afro-Columbian and they're a woman or because they're um, a woman and they're a lesbian or because they're trans, you know, all of these reasons make them harder to find because they become more invisible. The more layers of discrimination you may face in a conflict or, you know, with crimes, the harder it is to, to identify you because we just don't think with multiple lenses like that. And we, that needs to change. We need to do that. We need to be able to see them and recognize them and then know how to, how to engage with victims so that they're getting their full needs um, and also opportunities to help build their own peace. Yeah, I think your scholarship makes a tremendous contribution by providing this intersectional lens to talk about you, we already have vulnerable groups uh, in society, uh, women, LGBTIQ persons. Um, but in addition, we also have to think along the lines of race and class and religion and ethnicity and the ways in which people are double, triple, marginalized uh, and the extent to which, as you said, they, they become invisible and the crimes that are perpetrated against them are not recognized as such. And the challenges around um, recognition and also mobilization. Uh, and I love this idea of you, you know, bringing strength in numbers and, you know, kind of creating um, a mobilization, a mobilization of survivors. So thank you so much, Professor Davis, for coming on to Rights Talk today. You have just, again, your scholarship is so rich and your, your legal activism is really just 
um, so extensive and so multidimensional, works on many issues from sexual violence to underage marriage to torture uh, of violence, uh, kind of across this, this spectrum with this lens of gender-based violence. So thank you so much for being with us today. And I want to just say, it was just such a pleasure to have you. And really appreciate it. It was great to talk. And thank you to our listeners, wishing everybody safety and good health.